0: All right. Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola, and this is another uh, episode of Sensible Medicine Podcast. But this is a special episode because we don't have Vinay Prasad as our leader. Uh, We're doing it on our own. I have Adam Seifu uh, and Andrew Foy. And we have two big topics today. Uh, One is going to be uh, the idea of blaming insurance companies or big pharma or other uh, party players in our healthcare system. Uh, we have uh, some high-profile doctors uh, tweeting out kind of uh, things about insurance companies that are like, the, uh, this, they're bad, they need to change their policies. And the second topic we're going to talk about is one of Adam's tweets saying that he was no longer going to write in academic journals, and we're going to talk about the role of academic journals, maybe medical meetings, and academia in general. So let's get started with the let's get started with the first topic. Um, this idea that insurance denials and insurance companies make too much money, and they're the problem that need to be um uh, fixed. Any one of you can start.
1: I started up since <laughs> I feel like we're amateur hour without Vanai, right? Um so I you know the insurance thing is tough for me because uh, you know, insurance causes me a lot of grief, right? There are, are a lot of tests and treatments that I think are appropriate that I'm made to jump through hoops uh, for, um, though I do understand where it's coming from, right? There are companies, they're trying to make money. Um, that's their job. Um, and I take a little bit of the blame because we in medicine waste an enormous amount of money, Uh we sort of have a blank check to do whatever the hell we want. Um, and so I like to think that maybe some of this we brought on ourselves um, because we all see a lot of um, unnecessary testing, a lot of ridiculous treatments being offered. And it seems like somebody needs to put a break on them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's well put. Um, I mean, for me personally, I I mean I I do participate in a lot of patient care for anybody that's watching um I spend well over half my time doing patient care in the inpatient and outpatient settings so I don't want people to think this is just, you know, academic people talking about this who don't don't have a stake in the game. I mean I generally don't get many denials. Um and it probably isn't surprising to to anybody that knows me or my writing that I tend to be conservative when it comes to um, to, to things that I, to, that I advise for patients, whether it's treatments or tests uh, or interventions. And, um, I mean, I think as a result of that, I mean, there's not a whole lot of things that I do that um, are really in any sort of like gray zone areas. I mean, I can kind of count the denials I've had in the last, I was going to say year, but then I can count them, the, the amount of denials I've had in the last, you know, 14 months, probably on one hand. And, and I didn't even feel that strong about several of them. And the one that I felt strong about, um, you know, I went through the process to, uh, to, to challenge it. And, um, I was able to get, get the patient the, uh, the test that I wanted, which in that, Case happened to be a cardiac catheterization, and um, it it was approved fairly easily, and it wasn't that big of a deal. So, I mean, it's hard. I don't want to speak out of areas that are perhaps outside of cardiology or general cardiology, but just for me personally, it's not something that I run into on a frequent basis.
0: Well, Adam, I want to I want you to respond to that because I'm in Andrew's camp. I, I maybe get one denial. A year, and usually it's because someone didn't fill out the paperwork properly. I, I, it's almost non-existent in, in my world, and 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 maybe it's not, maybe it's not our practice pattern. Maybe it's just a class effect of of where we're at. And so I wonder, do you do you think, do you think that internal medicine is more burdened, uh, uh, primary care is more burdened than say specialty services
1: yeah. on this or no? Yeah you're making me think for the first time that maybe I should have done a cardiology fellowship. Um, yeah, I I mean, I can count, you know, a dozen, um, things that I was blocked on last week. Um, and I'm not exaggerating and this comes from, let's see, you know, any advanced imaging of the spine, um, you know, dozens of prescription orders, um, because, you know, I spend a ton of money, right? And and I am the entry point to a lot of this. And so if 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 insurers can block what I'm doing, they're saving a lot of money because they're not letting patients get to you guys, right? Where you do ridiculous things like coronary calcium scans and caths on people with well-controlled stable angina. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um so yeah, I mean I do think this is a problem in the way that doctors feel like my practice is being limited. um, My practice patterns are being dictated to me by non-physicians and it's slowing me down. And these are people who are obviously very busy and that's where the aggravation comes from.
2: Um, No, that's interesting. I mean, one thing that, that I notice and, Probably Maybe, John, you do as well, although you're probably even further downstream than than I am. But, I mean, I do oftentimes get consults for things from primary care physicians that I I oftentimes think, did they really need a consult or did they just want to order a test? And if they wanted to order the test, why didn't they just order the test without the consult? But to hear you speak about this, I mean, I do wonder perhaps that maybe they are more, you know, they're used to getting denials for for testing like echocardiograms or various stress tests, for example, that seem like they would generally be appropriate. So what I find that I generally just do the consult and do that particular test, and and oftentimes it might be normal or, or unremarkable, and it's sort of like you don't really see the patient again, so to speak. And I always it seems to me like they're a little bit soft, but maybe it's not so much an issue. Of the console being soft, it's just the provider not wanting to deal with the hassle of trying to order the test themselves. I mean, do you think that that has anything to do with that?
1: Uh, well, I, I think go, oh, John. Why did you answer no, it? No,
0: go ahead. I was just going to add uh, that's for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, wh- you know, when I think about and and maybe we're getting a little bit away from insurance behavior to kind of physician overspending, which needs to be regulated in some way. Um, when I see sort of excess, I generally feel like it's for three reasons, right? It's it's because the physician, you know, doesn't know um, what they're doing, right? I, I'm ordering something inappropriately and I just don't know that it's the wrong thing, right? Um, or it's because of some, you know, over concern, whether it be for just the the patient having a bad outcome, and I need to be excessively conservative, or because it's, you know, fear that I'm going to get sued about something. And I'm like, you know, I know this person doesn't have a PE, but oh, it would be terrible if they did. So I'm going to get that CT, even if I don't think they need it, and their D-dimer is negative, blah, 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 blah you know, or it's just graft, right? It's someone who's like, you know, my practice depends on me doing so many knee arthroscopies every month and that's why I'm doing it. Um, you know, and, and I, I think graft is is exceedingly rare. I think it's probably the first two points that it's people who actually think someone with syncope needs carotid dopplers or it's someone who is their, their sort of, um, I don't know what to call it. You know, their their diagnostic titration almost is set a little bit too conservative, where they're too risk averse, um, and I think that's I just, maybe I, where just it... I, I just I yeah. just want to
2: interrupt you for a second because I don't want people yeah. to get confused who are listening to this. So, so we're using the word conservative. You and I are both using it, but in exactly the opposite ways. And so, I think for the purpose
1: of, <laughs> it's true. It's of true. the paper
2: that we that we all wrote. I think when we say conservative, at least in that paper, probably the bias is to do less as opposed to more. But I also hear it used frequently in medicine, where people say somebody's being overly conservative, and so they're going to do more rather than less. And so I just wanted to point out for anybody that might be confused, there is no right way to use it. By the way, I mean we just sort of wrote that piece a couple years ago, and. You know, we defined it that way, but somebody could define it differently. So I just wanted to point that out. Well,
0: this was a perfect your comments, Adam, were a perfect segue to what I was going to ask next. And what I was going to ask next was that one of the themes on the thread was that insurance companies should let doctors be doctors and practice as we see because we're seeing the patient and we're the experts. And Yet the tension there is that you have uh, Dan Morgan, who's published extensively about how doctors overestimate or misestimate the probabilities, the, the, the uh, pre-existing probabilities that are priors of different diseases. And so um, I sort of, I, you know, I sort of see the point of the o- overseers of this who maybe may... Maybe, uh, you know, of course, their, incent- their incentives are different than the doctor, but they're also, they might even be more evidence-based than a doctor. So I have a real problem with just saying, let doctors be doctors.
1: The difficulty is is that um, the insurer is very far from the patient um, and they are using algorithms, evidence-based algorithms, I'll agree, but algorithms, which are, uh, you know, very far from the kind of granular decision making, right, that we make. And so I think of the times, and I'm just going to, I'll put this on myself, so I'm not insulting anybody else, you know, of the times that I am, you know, blocked um, by an insurer, Like I'd say, I generally understand why I'm being blocked. I don't agree with it because I've obviously thought about it and made what I feel is a rational decision. And I have to say that, you know, I don't know, you know, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it's a hassle because I got to make a call. I have to ask the nurse I work with to make a call. We fight back. And they're like, okay, you know, I agree. And it can feel like they're just making me jump through a hoop to save money Um, But I can imagine that if I was not a true medical conservative, um, you know, in our definition of the word, um, that would happen more because there'd be a lot of people with plain old boring mechanical back pain that I was going to an MRI after two weeks without physical therapy. And that would be an inappropriate test. And I should be blocked from doing that.
2: Yeah, you know, I think one thing that's worth talking about a little bit is this idea that it's really not in the best interest of insurance companies to, to excessively deny care. I mean, if we talk about the, the model of how health insurers make money, people may or may not be familiar with, with the 80, 20 rule, but I mean, insurance companies basically for profit and overhead can keep 20% of, of what they pay out. And they, they raise premiums to more or less, um, to, to suit that, that bottom line, so to speak, and to satisfy that 80-20 rule. And so, I mean, 20% of, you know, a bigger number is more than 20% of a smaller number. And so when we think about, you know, sort of the, I guess, the translation of, of, of new interventions, of new medicines into, in, into our fields... Um, it's not really in their interest to be denying care, particularly care that sort of has some reasonable evidence base behind it, even if a lot of people like probably me or or Adam or, or you John, we might even disagree. I mean, there's there's plenty of things that insurance companies, routinely pay for that. To be quite frank, I mean, I'm not even comfortable with them paying for it because (laughs) I'm not comfortable paying for it, you know, and and somebody's always paying. And so I think the notion that the the companies are, you know, sort of excessively denying care for, for to make more profit. I mean, that that is, I think, an example of sort of soft thinking. And it actually isn't it's not really consistent with with how these companies operate and make money. I mean, they make more money by allowing more care to occur and they set their premiums to, you know, to be commensurate with that.
0: Yeah, the Vinay talks about this, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up. He talks about this all the time, this 80-20 rule, where if you're if you're getting 20% of a pizza, you're going to get more pizza if you order a bigger pizza. And so my my question to both of you is then, uh, if, if that's the case, then why do they deny any of this?
2: Well, I mean, I think even within that framework of, of, of allowing a certain amount of, of care to occur, I mean, there are still, I mean, it, it's probably a very algorithmic formulation for, for what, you know, for what's going to be allowed or what's not. And I mean, within those algorithms, uh, it's challenging to account for, I think, the specifics of individual patients' cases sometimes. But I also think that there's things that are probably being denied that are that are probably reasonable denials in a lot of cases that just haven't met the sort of what I would consider even a low bar yet for being a, a, a approved uh, for payment, to be honest.
1: And it's a strange system we have here, right? That this for this this falls to commercial entities. Um, because unlike say in the UK, where when you know they consider are we going to you know adopt this therapy, right? Cost comes into that decision making, right? It doesn't for us, right? Things are improved, things are approved for use um without any you know thought about that. And so it falls to these companies which are, I mean, conflicted, right? I mean, they want to they try to spend less money. That's what their job is, um, to make the calls on these, which irritate doctors because they say, look, this medication is approved. I should be able to write a prescription for this. You know, why are you, you know, Aetna blocking me from doing it? And maybe that gets to how you started, John, is that, you know, the system is sort of screwy um, as far as who's the one who has the say. Well,
0: I I I, I want to. I'm debating where to take this, but I guess I want to. That pushes me one way. I want to think. I want to make the proposal that maybe maybe insurance companies, maybe pharma, maybe they're even simpler. Their 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 incentives are even simpler, right? An insurance company is in business to make money. A pharma companies in business to make money. They they have one goal to, to to make money, and I I just don't see that as nefarious. And I I I see this idea of saying there's bad pharma and bad uh, insurance companies and bad PBMs as I I think it's really soft thinking because they are in the system for one thing, and they're they're it's very easy to understand and i think that the 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 more critical thinking has to be how do you change their incentives and what are those trade offs and and how do we how do we uh, think about those trade offs and maybe i'm totally wrong maybe they are bad people but i know people in the insurance company and i in insurance business and i know people in pharma and i, I don't think they're like nefarious human beings
2: so um let say you well no so i think that's a good point and i, I guess not going so much with the pharma example right now but just sticking with insurance i mean the goal is to make money but they do provide a service which is valuable to people and i think all of us as as adults i mean wouldn't have you know when you're when you're like a kid or a teenager maybe even a young adult you don't appreciate the value of of a good insurance product that often but as you get older and you're an adult you realize that as a product insurance is a valuable thing and I guess some of the the, you know, the conflict within this country is perhaps, you know, where should that be provided from? Should it be from individual sort of companies or should it be more from a centralized government agency? But at the end of the day, I mean, insurance companies are providing a product, which I think the overwhelming majority of people would say is valuable. So it's not just that they're there to make money. I mean, Within any sort of system, uh, capitalist system, I mean, you make money really only if you provide a service which is valuable to people, and and so I do think there's value within what the insurance companies are. There's value to the to insurance, to health insurance. Um, I mean, how that's necessarily being administered, and you know, I guess the role of consumers in shaping that and whatnot. Those are all, I think complex topics and worth talking about but i think we do at least have to appreciate that insurance as a product is valuable um and so it's more than simply making money i mean it's making money to provide something that we want
0: adam are they bad guys
2: I think adam might be, <laughs> adam might be There's no way he could be he could be sitting that still
0: all right well uh, <laughs> let's 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 go with uh let's go with this andrew um what about um uh what about these ideas oh adam's coming back hang on a second see if we bring him back adam are you back No. sorry guys i lost you okay <laughs> That, did you hear that? Did you hear Andrew's point about the insurance? Okay. Your thoughts on just, that? Uh, are these nefarious people and nefarious entities?
1: No, and, and I don't think so. Um, they, I agree. They do provide services as does pharma. Um, our healthcare system has its problems, but is also as many people say envy of the world. Um, and that drives some people crazy these days as our life expectancy um, dwindles a tad. Um, but John, to go back to what you said, I mean, I think you have to accept, listen, in our system, you know, which is a capitalist system and uh, it's, it's the potential for um, profit, which drives all of this, right? This is how it works. And if we want to change the incentives, that's a big discussion. Um, and, I agree that the incentives should be chained, changed, you know, in some ways. Um, We offer a lot of things we probably shouldn't be able to offer because they're not effective. Um, But I think because that's a discussion that people are uncomfortable having. The easy thing to do is to say like, "Ah," you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield stinks because they make me, you know, push back against their decisions. So
0: this is another perfect segue. Thank you for uh, we're going to do maybe five more minutes on this, but your comment about ours being a capitalist system. And and I really, sometimes I, I wonder about that because my idea of a capitalist system is, is, you know, if you like the shoes and they're worth how much money you're willing to exchange for them, you buy it. And it's a sort of a free trade, um, uh kind of like Substack, you know, if people want to pay the five dollars a month, they can get the content. But I'm not sure that we, we have a very clean capitalist system. And I know that Andrew has been schooled in the Austrian school. And and I just wonder if we could make some comments about wh- what we think would we think would be a better system, or um uh and 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 of course what trade-offs would that entail
2: well so I guess i'll I'll just start and I would say that you know first off, I think that insurance as a product can exist in a capitalist system and I think there's a value to it. Um, but that comes with some trade-offs. I mean the biggest trade-off being that not everybody's going to necessarily have equal access to it. And so I think being in an in an advanced country, I mean we can, certainly um, have discussions about everybody having equal access to health insurance because of the value that it has. Um, and, and, but that is a big discussion. If everybody has equal access to it, then we probably have to put some limits on it that we don't, that our current system, you know, at least on a, on sort of a centralized level doesn't really put on uh on itself. And even if you look at like Medicare, for example, I mean, even our our Medicare system really doesn't follow the same sort of cost effectiveness rules as many other countries from around the world. And and, and people have to be careful about making generalizations about countries around the world compared to the United States, because healthcare is very complex in so many different countries. And many countries that we think of as being like single payer systems really have like multi-tiered systems where they sort of have like one central product available to everybody. But then there's a lot of different tiers of products that are available to people that want to pay more and and have the financial means to pay more. And so we, we shouldn't, I think uh, we need to just, you know, and me not having thought about this in depth in, in a couple of years, I mean, I don't want to really, speak out of my backside. But I mean, I've always been a proponent of sort of one centralized uh, system for everybody, but that followed pretty strict rules as far as cost effectiveness went. So, I mean, you know, Friedrich Hyatt called it like a bad standard, which could only be applied to everybody, but there's no amount, you know, he wrote in his book that, you know, there's really you can't put an amount on what some individual might pay to do all that's possible, but we can't do that for everybody. It's not feasible. And so agreeing on what that standard, you know, should be in, in like a democratic way. Um, I mean, that that's a discussion that needs to be had. If we want to talk about reform on that, on that sort of level. And that was something I thought that was disappointing about the affordable care act is it was sort of like presented and sold really as like a magic trick. I mean, we're going to do everything, you know, we're going to insure more people, but at the same time, we're going to cut costs and we're not going to do that by limiting like access or services in any way. And I mean, of course, you, you just can't do that. I mean, something has to give. And if and if and I think it's reasonable for things to give, but we just need to be very transparent about them. I've
1: got nothing to add to that. (laughs) I really have nothing to add to that. I I mean, just, you know, thinking about what you said, John, it's absolutely, I I mean, nothing in America is a pure capitalist system, right? There's a lot of regulation on top of everything. Um, And I think the reason that healthcare isn't that is um, for a lot of reasons, you know, I think people are unwilling to accept that both from the patient side of it and the doctor's side of it. Um, I don't think that's where we're headed. If anything, I think we're moving, you know, further away from healthcare being sort of unrestrained capitalism, which I think most people is are comfortable with that. Um, I think there are a few sort of out there libertarians who would say yes you know everybody should pay for their health come they should their health care they should know what it costs they should know what the outcomes are and if they want to go without any insurance fine you know but
2: I, I think i'm do. just i, ahead, I just want to say i'm going to go turn the lights on in my room because you know just so you know that's where i'm going be right all right, now. <laughs> all
0: right very good i think the 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 take home message there was we really need to talk about we really to talk about these system problems we really have to talk trade offs and I and I think I'm not sure that we really are comfortable talking about these trade offs it's easier to just place blame on 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 certain actors and so I think it's the synopsis let let's move to the second topic go ahead go ahead you have one more thing to say. say.
1: I think also, you know, just to admit, we're probably being a little bit unfair um, because n- nobody's best thinking comes out on Twitter, right? It's a much better place to complain than it is to, you know, weigh the strengths and weaknesses of the American healthcare system. Um, but I think we made, I think we made good points about it.
2: Yeah, okay, yeah, and, yeah, and, and you. Know, one more thing, just to add before we close this loop. I mean, Adam did mention, you know, that probably most people in this country are really fine with with healthcare not being a pure capitalist system but my only i guess defense of sort of the the libertarians in the room and i'm not saying i agree but but the defense of them is that i think they genuinely believe that prices would fall for everybody and i kind of think that they would if we had a pure a pure pure capitalist system however the trade off there would be that there is going to be people that that don't have access for various reasons. And so, you know, I just wanted to sort of put a stamp on that.
0: Excellent. Excellent. All right, let's move to the second topic. We'll do about 20 minutes or so. Uh, Adam uh, wrote this very interesting tweet that he was not going to publish in academic journals anymore. And Andrew is, is deep in uh, academia Uh, as an associate professor and publishes a bunch and in in the last few years i've published some and um now i'm really wondering um we have these other avenues we have uh uh uh, you know social media we have substack we have different avenues for the translation and communication of of um science we 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 have preprints, which which are now you can put your science out there with public peer review, and uh, people will criticize these preprints because they haven't been peer reviewed. But like last week, I covered uh, a paper that was peer reviewed in one of the highest level cardiology journals that was really a flawed a flawed study. So a peer review obviously isn't getting it done. So I want to just throw it out there, Adam, to you just speak about. What what your feeling was about writing in academic journals, and then get Andrew's re, uh, response to that.
1: Sure, and and I should say to begin with, uh, you know, I'm in an incredibly privileged place, right? So, um, you know, I'm a professor at, at the institution I'm at. Um, I've published, you know, a lot in the past. I get to say like, oh, you know, he has so and so many you know, journal, so-and-so many articles in peer-reviewed journals, so it's not like I'm taking some brave stand here. Um, but the reason I said that, and I said it a little bit in joking because I looked up my Google scholars and saw how my um, my citations are falling and said maybe maybe I'm doing this just because nobody's paying attention to me anymore. Um, but I thought it was important because I'm at a place in my career where I'm not, you know, retiring tomorrow um, but I have the luxury of sort of saying like, what's important right now to me, right? Um, and it was a time that I, you know, gave up some positions at work, picked up some positions of work and sort of said, you know, what I really like doing is is I love seeing patients and I love teaching to, you know, sort of larger groups of students at multiple different levels. Um, and one thing that I realized that as much as I love to write, I hate the whole publication process in our classic journals. Um, and it's because mostly when I write something, it's, you know, a thought piece an S an essay, a critical appraisal piece. Um, and I sort of, you know, I've been doing that for 25 years. I kind of know what I want to say um, and going through The editorial process of having a journal editor say, you know, this is not the article I would have written if I was writing it. I think you should change X, Y, and Z. Kind of makes me crazy at this stage. Um, And I think, you know, as John, you alluded to, we're lucky that there are a lot of great outlets for physician writers, um, physician essayists, physicians doing critical appraisal, physicians wanting to put out opinion pieces um, that can kind of skirt the whole journal system and actually get much more kind of conversation and feedback um, from the people who are interested than could ever happen at a journal.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with that. And I, I mean, I'm not, you know, quite in, in Adam's position yet. I mean, I hope to be in five or 10 or 15 years, but I think if I was, I would probably feel the same way. I mean, I kind of feel that way now. I just can't really, I'm not really in a position to, uh, to sort of stop trying to, to publish. Um, And, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with his, with his thinking there. And um, yeah, I mean, it's quite a hassle. Um, I think the peer review process is, not tremendous but i i don't i can't think of anything better i mean sometimes i've heard it phrased as you know the peer review process is like you know democracy it's like the worst system but better than everything else sort of thing and and i mean i think that's probably fair i mean we've all probably had our experience with bad peer reviews occasionally you get good peer reviews but i mean i very rarely even in my position get a peer review where I'm like, you know, the changes that are suggested are really going to benefit this manuscript. And I think that that's sort of the classic way it's thought about. I mean, my boss still mentions it all the time. And, you know, I mean, he's an old school guy and it's just like, I I never feel that way. I've almost never felt that way that like a criticism in a peer review has led to changes in the manuscript that have made it, Better in some way or another, normally it it tends to be more of like some sort of substantive disagreement with like the overall conclusions that are that are being presented. Um, you know, and you just w- I always wonder what is the bias of the particular reviewer. Um, and it's sort of I, I very rarely feel that when things are rejected, it's because the merits of of like the underlying science, are really the issue
0: yeah um, I wanna I wanna I wanna um question you on two of the two things there one is that one is just I think I know the answer but why why does it have to be that way why why do you have to publish and why do we have this incentive structure and do you do you ever do you ever see it changing because there's so many problems with with that incentive structure uh, in terms of doing science and also, um, also teaching young people to be physicians.
2: Well, I mean, you know, how do you, um, you know, so for example, with promotion within the academic system, I mean, how many ways can you distinguish people that are sort of fulfilling the roles of, of, of being an academic? Um, I mean, if you're not publishing, um, if what? you you know let's say you're a clinician educator for example or um i mean how ha- how do you really distinguish that people are doing academic work and i mean i know that there's these other places now and i and i love sensible medicine i mean i've i've written in it a bunch of times i would like to write even more um but like for somebody looking at me coming up for promotion i mean sensible medicine at the end of the day I mean, it's still a blog site, and um, right. I mean, it. How do they know how to sort of compare that I've written? Let's say I write twenty pieces in Sensible Medicine over the next year or so. I mean, I think it's just a matter of. Um, I think the playing field is changing, but I think it takes some time to adjust to that. And and I mean, I think the journal, the publishing, you know, model was probably it's probably different 20 30 years ago when there wasn't a you know 5000 journals out there cuz we now know that you can you can even publish in a lot of journals relatively easily if you're willing to pay or you have the means to do that um yeah but i don't I, know
0: I, isn't the downside though i mean I, as an outsider looking in i just see the huge downside of you're you're going to take these young people and if science is about is about discovering truth, and you take these young people who are who need to play the game and who need to stay on point and who need to get on these consensus papers and these guideline papers that get cited all the time. And you're not getting on a guideline paper if you're questioning the evidence base or uh, uh, trying to, you know, or question the prevailing uh, way of thinking. And so I, I just I just see it as a huge huge downside.
1: Uh, it's uh, it's such a, it's such a hard issue. I mean, as, as you guys talk and listen to you make these points, you know, there's, there's so much on either side, you know, John, your piece last Monday on sensible medicine on the, you know, the watchman device, right. Um, You know, was so perfect not to like pat ourselves on the back, but it was like, you know, not only the the height of sort of critical appraisal, but it was also clinically really important. And somebody on Twitter said, oh my God, these are good points. You know, have you written a letter to the editor? And I like laughed out loud. I was like, well, you know, that is a complete waste of time, right? Because it'll come out three months from now and nobody will read it. And in fact... You know, a really well received article on sensible medicine, which had you know, I don't know, sixty thousand reads, right, is incredibly important and probably gets read more than the actual article itself. Fortunately, um, but on the other hand, you know, I Andrew to to speak to it, you said, you know, I still have. A lot of students who I teach, um, a bunch of them have published on Sensible Medicine. And I have to tell them that, like, listen, um, I'd love to have you publish here. I think what you've written is terrific. But this is not going to help you in the long run, because, you know, a line on, of Sensible Medicine on your CV, that's going to carry a whole lot, you know, less weight than, even a publication in, you know, a 12th tier journal, you know, that you've paid for to get your article into. Um, And although I would love it that we had some journals, you know, a small number of journals which published, you know, the really important papers um, and some really important well-done guidelines and meta-analyses, And then we had some sort of open access with open data to kind of get everything else out there that we could all read, we could weigh into and that we'd figure out some way to value it. So, you know, if it's viewed a lot, if it's commented on, if it grows there, if it improves, you know, that becomes super important for our, you know, academic growth.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I love that idea. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great idea. I mean, and in fact, you know my my boss and I were talking uh, within the last month about trying to come up with a way to sort of provide a quantitative estimate of of the academic success that somebody's had within the last year because we're looking at adapting adapting it for our department and and it and it was sort of like an interesting waiting system about you know, did you receive an independent grant? Did you submit an independent grant? Did you publish? But the publishing was sort of interesting because it assigned points to the various positions that you were in the paper. So, you know, one of the right. things that's sort of always a thorn in my side is that, you know, when it comes to like H index, I mean, if you're on a guideline committee and you're involved with publishing something with a, ma- you know, that has yeah. a massive uh, citation uh, trail. You know, you probably didn't put as much work into that as somebody trying to publish an original article that, you know, has 10 or 20 citations, but, you know, you get far more credit. So this, this system sort of would, would get rid of that because if you're not the first, second, or last author, I mean, you basically get a tenth of a point and it doesn't change no matter how valuable the paper happens to be. And there's no perfect system, you know, but, you know, we're just, talking about ways of trying to, to weigh success in in academics and it's challenging, but I mean, there are, but there are people that are in that role of like clinician educator and they're really not doing anything. Right. And I mean, so you want people to be doing something to show that you're, that you are being academic, that you're thinking scientifically and that you're trying to contribute to the field as opposed to just only consume being a consumer and taking care of patients. And and that's great. And that's that's a I mean exactly what you should do in, in practice. But there's supposed to be something more than that that you do within the academic system, at least to get promotion.
1: Wait, I got to push back because as a proud clinician educator, right? I, I mean I, I think it's important to value people in different ways depending on what they do. Um to be honest with you, I think a an excellent clinician educator should be able to rise, you know, to a full professor at a major academic medical center, having published absolutely nothing. Um, because if that person is, you know, an excellent clinician, an excellent teacher, you know, developing curriculum at their site, you know, training students and residents, boy, that's what we want them to do. We don't want them to be filling journals with you know some ridiculous like you know course plan that who cares you know it's not going to transfer outside their institution
0: yeah i think vinai would Sorry. if he if he was here <laughs> i think he would be ranting about how how crazy it is that we that we value these very low level uh, papers that we 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 we've sort of forced young people to do to to rise up and wouldn't it be better to have some way to measure their their critical thinking or their clinical skills because i mean they might contribute more to science by you know critically appraising uh, studies rather
2: than doing some very like poor paper well and I, I mean i would just say that i i would totally agree with what adam said about a clinician educator contributing to Education development and curriculum development—that's a big task. I mean, I would consider that to be an extremely important role that that would merit promotion on on its basis. But so, yeah, I don't want I don't want it to be thought that like I don't think that that in and of itself <laughs> should count because I because I do. all
0: right would so, uh, say final final thing on this on this topic. I still want to hone in on these negative incentives uh, of, of, of the system that we have now. And, and I want to bring up two things, Adam, I, am pretty sure your medical reversals paper, which was one of the most important papers I, I've seen in years, uh, didn't really get published very easily. I think, I think Vinay told me it went to 10 journals. And so, you know, yeah. to me, that's a huge negative. That's a huge negative. And, and Andrew and I were part of a, were part of a meta-analysis that really, uh, uh, peer review changed, Uh, Because of the opinions of the content experts who are peer reviewers, they materially changed uh, the findings of the paper, or at least the way the paper was interpreted. And I really, I really think that these are, these are negative, uh, 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 you know, negative uh, outcomes. And to me, like a a preprint sort of system where this could be publicly peer reviewed would be so much better than having the academic process change the nature of the science.
1: Andrew, you got me thinking when you were talking about, you know, how you value publications. And then John, I think you sort of build on that, that I think if, you know, we all looked at our Google scholar and kind of went down that list, right. To see what are the papers that, we felt like we contributed a lot to. And what are the papers that we feel are important, right? Often those are going to be lower in the list of things that have been cited. And then on the flip side, to get to what you said, John, you know, or they're going to be papers which, you know, we're very proud of and have been cited a lot, but we're held to get published right? And, you know, on the one side is like our medical reversal paper, which is, I think, up at the top of my list. But yeah, we got rejected from everywhere, you know, before we got that published. And probably at the bottom, well, not at the bottom, but somewhere in the middle is our medical conservative piece, you know, which I'm like, profoundly proud of that piece, right? Um, But I would guess that that's kind of middling as far as, you know, um, citations. But that's for me is like one of those things that I'm going to look back when I retire my career. If I were to take a dozen papers home with me from work, you know, that would be in the list because I think that really spoke to me. I think it spoke to a lot of people in both ways, right? There are people who hurl invective at me because I'm a medical conservative on Twitter. I sort of like that, but um, it's interesting.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the papers that I value the most are some of the ones that certainly wouldn't make any like citation list or anything like that. Um, And yeah, it gets to the idea of of how do we judge people's contributions um, in, in this space. And it's not easy to do. Um, But I think we can all agree that if somebody was, you know, in an academic model and they didn't develop curriculum and they weren't publishing anything, it would be challenging in that case to probably put them up, you know, for, for, for promotion, but um, yeah.
0: All right. All right. Well, excellent. Um, this has been a, a, a great episode. I, I hope that, I hope that uh, people like it even without Vinay. Um, uh, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Thanks very much for listening.